Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we will be studying the words of the Buddha. The words of the Buddha is what helps you to understand the path to enlightenment. In order to progress on this path, you would need teacher to help you and guide you along the path. And that teacher should base their teachings in the words of the Buddha because a Buddha is the one who discovers the path to enlightenment. They're the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path to enlightenment. And what's happened over the course of many, many years is we have changed the teachings. People have mixed them and diluted them and modified what the Buddha originally taught. And this is why we don't see the massive number of people attaining enlightenment now as we did during the lifetime of the Buddha. So by using the words of the Buddha as the source of your practice, diving into the teachings and investigating them, you can then observe what the Buddha actually taught and what he didn't teach. But you don't believe the teachings, even in the written books. You don't believe what the Buddha taught in terms of the translations that you're reading. Instead, you learn them, you reflect on them, and you practice them to see the truth for yourself. In this Pali Canon in English study group, where we come together each Saturday, we use the words of the Buddha as our foundation in order to study this path to enlightenment. And we learn, we reflect, and we practice in training the condition of the mind to improve, to get to this mental state of enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Now we're in volume three of this 13-volume series. And we're in chapter 61 through 70, where students all over the world are reading those chapters and then coming to class to discuss them. What we do in this program is we first start with a meditation in order to just kind of prepare the mind a little bit, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of meditation. Then we read each individual chapter of the book, going from chapter 61 to 70 this week. And then I will teach and kind of share with you a bit of teachings related to that chapter and open up to any questions that students have. So if you've read these chapters before class, that's wonderful. You will probably be coming into class with some certain questions that you would like to get answered or certain discussions or confirmations that you would like to confirm your understanding of the teachings. But if you're joining us for the first time and you haven't read these chapters, it's okay because we're going to read them today in class and you're still welcome to join. And then you can download the book for the future class, which you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and you'll see a, a button there for download free books and you can read the next set of chapters and start participating in the class week by week.
So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class. We're going to go ahead and start with meditation just to kind of prepare the mind a bit. And then we'll actually start learning the chapters 61 through 70, first with a student reading, then with me teaching, and then opening up to any questions on that particular chapter. And by the end of today's class, you will have learned more about this path to enlightenment through the words of the Buddha. So go ahead and take your meditation position, whether that's seated, standing, or lying, and start to bring the body into your meditation posture, where the lower body, if you're sitting, should be nice and stable. The hands and arms should be comfortably resting in your lap. The upper body should be nice and erect. By keeping the upper body erect, this keeps the mind attentive and alert. Then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Taking some nice, gradual breaths. Breathing in and out. I'll just give you a little bit of guidance. This class tends to attract people who have been studying for a bit longer. So no need to go into a lot of detail here. But if you're joining us for the first time, you may like to join one of our other programs where there's more guidance on meditation. So just bring the breath in through the nose and out through the nose. Establish a nice, steady, consistent breath. Focus the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath or sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Anytime the mind is not on the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Breathing in and out. I'm going to do some chanting just to ease us into meditation. After that, continue to focus on the breath cutting off any thoughts, letting them go, and come back to the breath. And then we'll finish with a chant as well. You're welcome to join with these chants if you've already learned them. Sabhakavato 
like to make your way out of meditation, go ahead and start our class with reading each one of the chapters. Our moderator, Basam, Manal, and Nick are also helping as well, will be able to guide us through the chapters. If you've signed up for a chapter, you can read that chapter, then I will teach it, then we'll open up to any questions on that particular chapter. So I'll go ahead and turn the class over to all of you to progress through each chapter and allow you to ask any questions that you have. Hello, teacher. Uh, our first volunteer for chapter 61 is uh, Miranda. Uh, the preservation of truth. But Master Gautama, in what way is there the preservation of truth? How does one preserve truth? We ask Master, Master Gautama about the preservation of truth. <laughs> if a person has confidence, Bharadava, he preserves truth when he says, my confidence is thus, but he does not yet come to the def definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. If a person approves of something, Bhargava, he preserves truth when he says, my approval of something is thus, but he does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. If he receives an oral tradition, Bhargava, he preserves truth when he says, my receiving of the oral tradition is thus, but he does not yet come to the definite conclusion, 
Only this is true, anything else is wrong. If he reaches a conclusion based on reasoned reflection, Baradava, he preserves truth when he says, my reaching of a conclusion based on reasoned reflection is thus, but he does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. If he gains a reflective understanding of a view, he preserves truth when he says, my reflective understanding of a view is thus, but he does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. In this way too, Bharadava, there is the preservation of truth. In this way, he preserves truth. In this way, we describe the preservation of truth. But as yet, there is no discovery of truth. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So we're going to have three chapters here where the Buddha is talking about the truth. And as you guys know, in order to get to enlightenment, a practitioner will need to learn the truth independently verify that in order to acquire wisdom that's how the mind moves to enlightenment to eradicate ignorance or that unknowing of true reality is to independently confirm the truth and the buddha is talking about how to ultimately get to the truth in terms of learning and practicing these teachings to eradicate ignorance that's what these three chapters are going to guide us in the other way that you can look at this chapter as well is that you Know that the practice is to always speak the truth. That's part of the five precepts. It's also part of the five factors of well-spoken speech to always speak the truth. And one of the ways you can look at this chapter is how do you preserve your ability to always speak the truth? Now, in the description of this chapter and all the others, I talk about how independent verification and leading leads you to wisdom and leads you to ultimately attain enlightenment. And that's what the Buddha is talking about. But here, what I would like to introduce to you is another way to view this chapter that is beyond what I wrote in the book, is what the Buddha is also talking about here is how you can preserve your ability to speak the truth, is that if you understand things in a certain way, if you would like to preserve the truth, you can say, based on my understanding, or based on my opinion, or based on my experience, and then you explain the statement of whatever you're going to say in a certain conversation that you're having with any particular person. In that situation, what you're doing is you're not allowing arrogance or pride to come into your speech, and you're basically speaking based on your experience and what you know to be true. Nick was here just a couple of days ago, and we were looking at some of the realms, and there was this elaborate poster that somebody had put together, and they were talking about the different realms. And I said to Nick, and I said, based on my experience and what I've seen in the Buddhist teachings, this is how I view the realms. Rather than saying, this poster's wrong, you know, the realms are this way, such and such and such and such. This is where arrogance comes in. And you don't necessarily know if you're speaking the truth 100% because the truth that's in your mind until you get to final knowledge, which is enlightenment, the Buddha calls it final knowledge. Until you get to final knowledge, you really don't know 100% if what you're sharing is in fact 100% of the truth. So one of the ways to preserve truth in order to ensure that you're always speaking the truth is you can preface something that you say or add to the end of it 
you can say, in my opinion, based on the experiences I've had, here's my thoughts. Or as the Buddha says here, based on the oral tradition that I've learned or based on the teachings that I've read in the Pali Canon, this is my thought and this is what I feel. Or any kind of thing like this, the Buddha talks about here, if you've had some reflection and you've met a certain conclusion, you can say, based on the reflections that I've looked at or based on my thinking or based on my understanding of these teachings, this is my thoughts. This allows you to always preserve the truth because if some other information comes to you at some point in the future, then you can revise what you're saying and what you're sharing. Whereas if we just assume that everything you know right now is the truth and you speak that way, then you're putting out into the world information that may not be truthful and you're not necessarily speaking the truth. And it also can come from a place of arrogance or pride, this conceit, this ego. So in addition to the things that I shared in this chapter and explanations, you may start deciding in real crucial conversations, whether it's in a court or with a lawyer or a police officer or some of your family members, or if you're working on some financial matter with your life partners or something, you may not be able to see the full truth on that topic. And what you're sharing with that individual at that point in time is based on your current understanding or based on my current experiences, based on what I currently know, this is my thoughts. So that way, if your life partner or somebody else in your life goes off and finds some other additional piece of information and brings it to your attention, it's like, oh, that's different than what I was saying over here because I was basing my opinion and my thoughts on our conversation based on what I knew there. Now with this new information, now my thoughts have changed. So to preserve your ability to always speak the truth, don't assume that what you currently know is the truth. And you might choose in certain situations to preface or end what you're saying based on my opinion, based on my thoughts, based on my experience, based on what I currently know, based on what I currently understand. You can then share what you feel is the truth. But that leaves the mind open to understanding other opinions, other thoughts, other information, either now in the conversation that you're having or in some future conversation. And this helps you to always preserve the truth. So that's another way that you can look at this. But what the Buddha is talking about here in these three chapters is how to ultimately get to final knowledge and acquire wisdom and ultimately attain enlightenment you would need to preserve the truth and look at how not to consider that all of these other things are wrong and what you know is right, right? So if you have certain experiences and certain understandings and you say, only this is true, the things that I know, that's true, everything else is wrong, you're not going to get to enlightenment this way because if you're currently not enlightened, then you don't currently know the truth 100% about these teachings. It means that the mind still has that fetter of ignorance, unknowing of true reality. It's not until you've completely eliminated discontentedness for an extended period of time that you can 
comfortably know in the mind that you fully eradicated ignorance and unknowing of true reality and you've acquired final knowledge or final wisdom. But if we come from the perspective of what I currently know is the truth and everything else is wrong, then you're not leaving the mind open to understanding more content of the Buddhist teachings in order to eradicate ignorance and ultimately get to enlightenment. So if you notice when people ask me questions about other teachings or other things, I never use the word wrong, that someone else is wrong and I'm right. You'll never hear me say that because to say someone else is wrong and I'm right is to come from a position of conceit or arrogance or pride, that ego is still there. I would not say somebody else is wrong and I'm right because that means that you're assuming that everything in your mind is 100% the truth, which can't be the case. You can't always know the truth. In terms of the Buddhist teachings, I feel like I do know the truth. But even if someone else has a different opinion than me, I'm not going to say that they're wrong and I'm right because that would be from arrogance. So to preserve the truth and ensure you're practicing in a way that's humble, it's better to use these prefixes sometimes where you say, in my opinion, or my thoughts. Some people even say, in my humble opinion, or in my humble thoughts, right? You can even preface it that way. And don't think about it as somebody else is wrong and you're right. Just think of it as they have a different view, a different opinion. And that's okay because of the universal truth of impermanence. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Yes, teacher. Uh, you just need to make sure that based on what is what's shared here in this teaching, this does not go against having confidence in the Buddha and the teachings. Being confident that everything that was shared by the Buddha was the truth. You need to develop confidence in the Buddha in order to attain enlightenment, but that confidence is oftentimes built very slowly as you observe more and more improvements to the condition of the mind through practicing the teachings. So it's not blind confidence. It's confidence through investigating the teachings and seeing the results of those teachings. Yeah, thanks, Tisha. Uh, no question for this chapter. Okay. So chapter 62, this is a chapter you asked me to read, Bossum? Yeah, please teach me. Okay, so this chapter is titled The Discovery of Truth. The first one was Preservation of Truth. This one is Discovery of Truth. And then there's one after that that's titled Final Arrival at Truth. That's the actual attaining of enlightenment. So this particular chapter is going to relate to how to discover the truth. This is where the Buddha is talking about how to ensure that you actually have a teacher. So one of the things that I share is that only a Buddha would be able to attain enlightenment without the help of a teacher. But this isn't widely known in the world. There's a lot of people in the world that think that they can just read the Pali Canon and attain enlightenment. And you'll see in this chapter where the Buddha lays out how to, in order to discover the truth and acquire this wisdom, you're going to need a teacher. And he gives a perspective on how to select a teacher in terms of ensuring that the teacher doesn't have craving, anger, and ignorance, or that unknowing of true reality. So here he's going to give you guidance on how to discover the truth of his teachings that leads to wisdom. The discovery of truth. 
But in what way, Master Gotama, is there the discovery of truth? In what way does one discover truth? We ask Master Gotama about the discovery of truth. Miranda had a wonderful pronunciation of this name. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it because I'm not even close to it. So I'll just say this person's name as student. Okay, Here, student, a monk may be living in dependency on some village or town. Then a householder or a householder's son goes to him and investigates him in regard to three kinds of states. So here the Buddha is saying, you know, let's investigate this monk in terms of three different things. You shouldn't just choose to learn from any old person who's dressed in white or who's wearing a, a robe. You should look at this monk's practice to determine whether or not there's someone who's virtuous and someone who actually truly knows the teachings. Same thing with me. A student shouldn't just choose to learn with me because I shave my head and I wear all white, but they should look at these aspects of my practice and say, is this someone who understands the teachings and someone that I can learn with? And the Buddha gives three states that should be investigated. And the reason why is that someone who's enlightened will have eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, or greed, hatred, and delusion. So the Buddha is saying these are the three states to investigate. And if somebody has craving, anger, and ignorance, what you're going to see is he says it would be really hard for this person to actually teach if they still have craving, anger, and ignorance. So this is where essentially the Buddha shares the same thing that I share, which is in order to start teaching and be really proficient at that, someone should have already attained enlightenment. So here we go. In regards to the states based on craving greed, in regards to the states based on anger, hatred, in regard to the states based on ignorance or delusion, these are the three states that the Buddha says we should investigate a potential teacher to ensure that they don't have these in order to decide to actually learn with them. So here's his advice on investigating craving. Are there in this venerable one any states based on craving greed such that with his mind obsessed by those states, while not knowing he might say, I know, and while not seeing he might say, I see, or he might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and discontentedness for a long time. As he investigates him, he comes to know. There are no such states based on craving greed in this venerable one. The bodily behavior and the verbal behavior of this venerable one are not those of one affected by craving greed. And the teachings that this venerable one teaches are profound, hard to see, and hard to understand, peaceful and superb, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. These teachings cannot easily be taught by one affected by craving. So if someone is sharing teachings that are profound, that are superb, that are a challenge to understand, that mere reasoning would not allow you to just understand the teachings, but you really need to dive in and investigate them. The Buddha says these teachings cannot be easily taught by somebody who has craving or greed because craving is that mental longing with a strong eagerness chasing after the objects of their affection. So if a teacher has craving, they haven't yet eradicated it. 
So how could they teach others to eradicate it? So it's like, how could someone teach someone to drive a car if they haven't yet learned how to drive a car? So a teacher would need to learn how to eliminate craving before they could teach others how to eliminate it. And the Buddha talks about ensuring that you investigate a teacher's bodily behavior and their verbal behavior, essentially their conduct. Is this person practicing right action? That's bodily behavior. If someone is killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, or is taking substances that cause heedlessness, that's wrong action. This person wouldn't be able to practice deeply the teachings, so therefore they wouldn't be able to share those teachings. And same thing, the verbal behavior or verbal conduct. If someone isn't practicing those five factors of well-spoken speech and the precepts and all the other aspects along that the Buddha teaches in terms of verbal behavior or verbal conduct, how could this person teach others how to do that if they themselves aren't practicing it? So the Buddha is giving you insight and saying, you know, don't just select any old teacher, but investigate their bodily behavior, investigate their verbal behavior, look at their teachings and see, are these teachings really leading to peacefulness and helping the mind in, in order for a teacher to be able to teach in that way, they would need to have eliminated craving. This first part of the paragraph, he's saying, look to see if a teacher has, while not knowing something, say, I know, or while not seeing something says, I see. A teacher who's applying teachings and sharing teachings for the benefits of their students and who no longer has craving, desire, attachment, and someone who's eliminated conceit, arrogance, or pride, and ego. If somebody asks a question and they don't know the answer, a teacher would say, I don't know. Or if they don't see, if they don't understand clearly what the actual teachings are, they would say, I don't see this teaching. I don't understand this teaching. But someone who still has arrogance, someone who still has pride, someone who has that conceit, someone who still has ego, they might look at a certain teaching, not really know what it means, and then actually say, yeah, I know what this means, and just start teaching any old thing. And if you learn with a teacher like this, who was teaching with arrogance and ego, and who wasn't willing to say, I don't know, then they're going to be misleading students. So in order to be a teacher, if you're not yet enlightened and you're going to teach, it's important to be able to say to your students, I don't know the answer to this. Let me talk with my teacher and find the answer and then I will let you know. That's a very important thing because if there's a teacher who's just teaching out of arrogance, who's teaching out of conceit with this craving just to look really great in front of their students, then they're going to say things that are misleading and that's very dangerous for the students. So this first paragraph, the Buddha is giving you specific things to look for in a teacher in order to determine if this is someone that it's worthy for you to actually learn with. Because if you're going to attain enlightenment, it's going to take an enormous amount of effort to learn and practice those teachings and progress to enlightenment. You would like to make sure the person that you're learning with has attained enlightenment and that they don't have craving or greed because if you're learning with someone whose mind is still polluted, then they're going to potentially mislead you in certain ways. So it's really wise to investigate and observe 
a teacher before you invest all this time, effort, energy, and resources in learning with them. And the Buddha says the same things here, very similar with this next paragraph, where he talks about anger or hatred. So here I'll read this one. When he has investigated him, he has seen that he is purified from states based on craving greed. He next investigates him in regards to states based on anger or hate. Are there in this venerable one any states based on anger, hate, such that with his mind obsessed by those states, while not knowing he might say, I know, or while not seeing he might say, I see, or he might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and discontentedness for a long time. As he investigates him, he comes to know there are no such states based on anger, hate in this venerable one. The bodily behavior in the verbal behavior of this venerable one are not those of one affected by anger, hate. And the teachings that this venerable one teaches are profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and superb, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. These teachings cannot easily be taught by one affected by anger, hate. So if somebody's affected by this anger, hatred, this ill will, this aversion and pushing things away, they're not going to be able to easily share these teachings. So the Buddha is saying someone should be purified of anger and hate before they actually share these teachings. Then we go on to the next one. The same exact text, just related to ignorance or delusion. So I'm not going to read the entire thing, but just understand when you know what craving anger and ignorance are, then you can investigate this teacher and determine whether or not this would be a wise teacher. The challenge is, is that an unenlightened being who's brand new to the path, they don't even know what enlightenment is. They don't even know what craving anger and ignorance is. So it's very challenging for an unenlightened being who's not on this path to actually investigate a teacher and to determine whether this would be a helpful teacher. But the one thing that people can look at is they can look at the bodily conduct and the verbal conduct. If you see a teacher uh, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, hitting dogs or yelling or talking aggressively or harsh in ways like that towards others, then you know that their bodily and verbal conduct is not yet purified. And you know what you should look for in a teacher is a role model. When you see this person's practice, their intentions, their speech, and their actions, is this somebody that you feel has progressed very close to enlightenment or is actually enlightened, and this is a person that can guide you in attaining that same mental state. So what you should see in a teacher who's enlightened is not only these things, but you should see focus, you should see concentration, you should see clarity of mind, you should see a good memory, because anybody who has attained enlightenment will be experiencing those benefits. Where if somebody's tripping over their words every other word, if they're not able to focus and deliver clear teachings to you, then their mind is still cluttered. And we're not looking down on this person. We're not judging this person. We're not thinking they're bad, but they just maybe haven't progressed in their practice far enough to have that clarity of mind, that concentration, that focus to be able to clearly deliver teachings that are going to be beneficial for their students. So if there's ignorance or delusion in the mind, 
Another way to talk about ignorance or delusion is confusion. This is another way that we talk about this aspect of the mind. So a confused mind is going to be muddled. It's going to lack clear comprehension and clarity. Someone who's progressed on this path and has purified the mind, they're going to have clarity of mind. They're not going to have confusion and tripping over their words every other sentence. So those are things that someone who's not yet on this path, who's just looking for some simple things, just look at the bodily conduct, look at the verbal conduct, and look at the person's ability to speak clearly and precisely and concisely to be able to deliver these teachings. So the Buddha says, once you investigate these three states of craving, anger, and ignorance, then he says, okay, this is what you should do. When he has investigated him and he has seen that he is purified from states based on ignorance or delusion. So in other words, once you observe that this person's mind is clear and is able to be a potential teacher for you and you feel that this is a role model, somebody that has experienced the results of this path, then the Buddha says, okay, this is how you discover wisdom. This is how you discover the truth. Then he places confidence in him. Filled with confidence, he visits him and pays respect to him. Having paid respect to him, he gives ear. When he gives ear, he hears the teachings. Having heard the teachings, he memorizes them and examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains reflective understanding of those teachings. When he has gained a reflective understanding of those teachings, enthusiasm springs up. When enthusiasm has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he investigates thoroughly. Having investigated thoroughly, he applies effort and energy through purposeful striving, determined to apply effort and energy through striving, he realizes the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. In this way, student, there is the discovery of truth. In this way, one discovers truth. In this way, we describe the discovery of truth. But as yet, there is no final arrival at truth. So the Buddha is saying here, this is essentially how to conduct yourself with a teacher. Place confidence in them. But you're not going to have confidence in that teacher if you haven't first observed that they've purified their mind of craving anger and ignorance. Once you have confidence in that teacher, then you visit them. You attend classes with them. You seek out guidance with them, right? You pay respect to that person because that person who's eliminated craving anger and ignorance they would be teaching you out of the kindness of their heart, the generosity of their heart, not because they want anything from you or not because they're expecting anything from you. So by you showing your respect, then you gain this ability to learn with the teacher, right? So having paid respect to the teacher, you give ear, you listen, you attentively listen to the teachings. When you give ear, you hear the teachings and you learn them, you understand them. Having heard the teachings, you start memorizing them and you start deeply understanding them. Here you examine the teachings that you've memorized. You don't just learn them and believe them, you continue to examine them and investigate them. That's that enlightenment factor of investigation. 
then you start reflecting on the teachings, right? You start reflecting, trying to understand those teachings, if they're true or not. Then when you start observing the truth, this is where the enthusiasm springs up. This is that enlightenment factor of energy. So the first part is talking about the enlightenment factor of investigation. Now there's this energy, this enthusiasm that springs up in the mind. That's the enlightenment factor of energy. Then you start applying your effort. You apply this will to further investigate the teachings more and more thoroughly. Then you apply the effort and energy to strive to actually practice the teachings. This is where I summarize this in learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. The Buddha talks about this, but he uses a lot more words in order to help you see the detail of it, right? And then as you apply effort and energy to practice the teachings, this is where you realize the ultimate truth through your own independent practice, that you can see that these teachings are working, and that's where you get this penetrative wisdom, and you know the truth, and you've now discovered the truth. But as the Buddha says here in the last paragraph, but as of yet, there is no final arrival at truth. This person hasn't attained enlightenment yet. They're in the process of doing that through gaining these learning this reflection and this practice of the teachings with a teacher who they have confidence in. So let's see what questions you guys have on this one. Yes, uh, Mana has a question. Let's go to her. Hi, teacher David. Um, I have a question regarding our independent practice. And um, generally, uh, the question is um, finding where uh, the application of investigation and examination by a practitioner and applying effort and energy uh, towards understanding the teaching clearly. Um, how, how do we differentiate when we are actually in the process of examining this and really applying effort and energy and when our mind develops any sense of judgment based on the results of our investigation. Um, I did look up the word judgment again, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there's a part of judgment where you end up um, having a sensible conclusion from something. Now, um, would, that, would judgment be a part of the investigation process? And what I mean is not to not to cling to any judgment, but understanding that yes, judgment does exist, and ultimately it's in the teaching to also um, eradicate that judgment itself. So the way that the dictionary defines judgment is it's kind of like defined as like looking at something and coming to some conclusion about it. Kind of looking at, for example, like a teaching like this and coming to a conclusion about it. And that's what they call a judgment, kind of like a judge at a court. A judge at a court listens to evidence and then they come to some judgment about the defendant and the case. Where in the Buddhist teachings, that's not how I use the word judgment, even though that's the common definition in the dictionary. The way that I describe judgment through the Buddhist teachings is this evaluating, this measuring and comparing of someone is above you or below you. So what I would use the language or the theme and the thought that you're coming 
to discuss and that you have a question about, I would call that evaluating rather than judging. I use this word judgment merely as comparing, measuring and comparing and putting yourself above and below. And this is where I say, and the Buddha says too, that we shouldn't judge others. We shouldn't measure and compare placing ourselves above or below others because this would be detrimental to the mind and someone who does that wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. So this judgment of measuring and comparing, placing above and below, you would like to eradicate that from the mind. But this evaluation, which is what you're really talking about in my view, is that we should evaluate the teachings, we should examine them, we should investigate them and come to some evaluation, some determination about the teachings. And that sometimes takes multiple sessions, things like the universal truth of non-self or understanding certain aspects of the teachings, even learning meditation or other aspects of the teachings. You have to really sit with them multiple times in order to fully examine them, fully investigate them. And through that learning, then you gain this reflective understanding of the teachings and then you practice them. And then through this process, you've kind of evaluated the teachings to come to some wisdom about the teachings. And this is kind of like a, an iterative process where you might have to sit with the books, come to classes, ask your teacher a couple of questions, practice it a little bit. And then as you're practicing it, it's not quite clear or not quite working the way you thought. You might have to go back to the books. You might have to go back to your teacher. You might have to reflect some more and then practice some more to see if you can actually fully implement this teaching. And then you do this a few times until you get to a point where you fully evaluated the teaching and you're like, aha, now I got what the Buddha calls final knowledge on that particular topic. You finally have come to the wisdom of why the Buddha teaches not to kill living beings or why to not steal or have sexual misconduct or lie or take substances that cause heedlessness. But initially, without that examination, investigation, having that reflective understanding, without practicing, being able to see the truth for yourself, you wouldn't be able to evaluate the teaching thoroughly enough to ultimately discover the truth and get to wisdom. If I do understand clearly, uh, you're um, going through that um, examination process um, and investigation um, and how that is, it, it is healthy to go ahead and do that, however, to form this um, idea that judgment is, um, which, which is measuring and comparing as you use those words, I think that that's, that's a, a, a second part to the judgment. Is there, is the word, does the word judgment actually include coming up with sensible conclusion as you have described the word judgment in your resources? All the ways that I describe judgment is based on this measuring and comparing. What you're describing, I would use the word evaluate, where you're coming to some conclusion about something. This word judgment is used like for example in christian teachings about some people feel that god is going to judge them at the end of their life and send them to either a bad place or a good place this isn't the truth of what's really happening but some people believe that and then because of that 
within culture of those traditions, oftentimes people are judging others. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they wholesome? Are they unwholesome? And then people place themselves above others and they look down on someone thinking that that person's bad or unwholesome. Or if you look up to somebody, you're judging that person and thinking that you're below them and now your mind is uncalm. So this word judgment, I use it as something that should be eradicated from the mind. It's an unwholesome quality of mind. And if you understand judgment as this measuring and comparing, placing yourself above or below, then you understand eradicate that aspect of the mind. But the Buddha never uses the word judgment as a positive thing, as something that should be practiced. Instead, he uses the words of examine, investigate, evaluate, things like that. The word judgment is used as something that we should not do. And that leads to unwholesome aspects of the mind. And it would create difficulties in a relationship if we're constantly judging the people around us, putting ourselves above and below others. There's that conceit there and the mind's not going to get to enlightenment if we do that. Understood. Also, uh, another question that came to the mind: At what point do we continue to, in some sense, differentiate between the teaching and the teacher who is teaching it? Um, and should you know, um, I'm. Um, we've run across many teachers uh, from the past, and. Um, you know, it's wonderful to um, have an independent practice and um, to place confidence in the teaching. Um, a lot of this um, is delivered from the teacher and, um, you know, teachers that exist in the world today. Um, at what point do we need to apply effort towards differentiating between teacher and teaching? And is that a cr critical step towards investigating the truth? and um, uh, you know, continuing with that independent practice and um, gaining more uh, confidence in the teaching. Like, should we have that um, as a, a mental practice to differentiate um, between the two? I don't see a, a clear delineation, but maybe that's just because of my role as a teacher. To me, I feel that my role is to share the teachings of the Buddha as they're represented and as I understand them and based on the experiences that I've had. So I don't see a clear delineation, although, you know, the Buddha talks about having confidence in him, having confidence in the teaching itself and having confidence in the community as three separate things to build this confidence in your teacher. You would need to have this investigation of the teacher and see is there craving anger and ignorance in this person do you ever see them craving anything do you ever see them being angry or irritated or frustrated about anything do you see any kind of ignorance or delusion or confusion about things so you can look at a teacher and evaluate and investigate whether they have any of these mental states of craving anger and ignorance and then you can have confidence in that person that okay this is a person that can lead me to enlightenment because I see the qualities of enlightenment in them. But then the teachings that they're delivering, the resources that they're sharing, the text that they're sharing, are those things having clarity and preciseness and conciseness that's gonna to lead to my ability as a student 
to be able to learn because these are two separate things. There's the books, there's the videos, there's the podcast, there's these kinds of things that are the teachings that any particular teacher should have and they should have access to the Pali Canon in whatever language that they're teaching in. But then they should, as a teacher, be able to deliver those teachings in oral discourses, which shows a reflective understanding and a deep understanding. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha taught that a teacher should always teach from their memory so that there's not this kind of prepared talk in just a speech that I'm kind of reading a speech, but instead I'm drawing from personal experience and sharing and delivering in a discourse from personal experience. And that's where the students can see that a teacher truly understands the teachings, that they're not just reciting the teachings from a book, but they actually have examined these teachings. They have been reflecting on these teachings. They've been practicing these teachings. So they have a real life practice to draw from in order to help their students. And you should be able to see that, that a teacher isn't just reciting what's in the teachings, but they can go beyond the teachings and actually give examples and explanations, expounding upon the teachings and not just being confined solely to what the Buddha said, but they are able to draw from personal experiences and further illustrate and illuminate the teachings based on those personal experiences. Thank you so much for walking through that. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks, Tisha. No more questions for this chapter. Okay. Now we're in chapter 63. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is uh, Ali. Okay. The final arrival at truth. But in what way, Master Gautama, is there the final, is there the final arrival at truth? In what way does one finally arrive at truth? We asked Master Gautama about the final arrival at truth. The final arrival at truth, student, lie in the repetition, development, and cultivation of those same things. In this way, student, there is final arrival at truth, wisdom, in this way, one finally arrives at true, true wisdom. In this way, we describe the final arrival at true wisdom. Okay, thanks, Ali. So this is just a continuation. If you went back to the original discourse, these three chapters are all one discourse that the Buddha is uh, teaching. So he's sharing here that essentially to attain enlightenment comes down to this final arrival of truth. You need to develop what's called final wisdom. And the Buddha is saying the way to do that is through repetition, you know, reading over and over and over. That's why some of the students who are learning with me take the group learning program multiple times, or they read this book multiple times. That's the repetition that needs to be built into your practice. Or like this class, this Pali Canon in English program, doing this multiple times, the repetition is what's going to allow the teachings to soak into their mind and arrive at final truth. You can't just learn something once, oftentimes, and just get to wisdom right away. It takes repetition. And then with that repetition, you develop and cultivate 
those teachings in the mind so that you're learning, reflecting, and practicing. And this is how one arrives at truth or this wisdom. And then that's how the mind eradicates this ignorance or unknowing a true reality. If you think of these three poisons, but particularly this one of ignorance as like a big boulder in the mind that's like blocking the mind from this enlightened mental state, what you're doing with this repetition, it's like a jackhammer, like and keep breaking down this boulder more and 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 more. And it's through the repetition of constantly learning, constantly reading, constantly meditating, constantly coming to classes and doing that in a gradual progression where you can also take care of the things that you need to take care of in life, where you have a life partner or you do not, or you have a job or not, or you help out in your community or not, you're able to do certain things because you have to take care of this physical body, you need to take care of this mind, you have to take care of your home, you need to take care of your occupation if you have children or dogs or other things that you've got going on. You need to kind of gradually bring these teachings into the mind but doing it in a repetitive basis. And that's why I suggest for people to read 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes a day at most and then do their meditations throughout the course of their day, two or three for 30 minutes or more. And then if you're doing this over a consistent period of time, multiple years, then you're repetitively going through the teachings and you're developing and cultivating the mind, all leading to the breaking down of this ignorance, which ultimately leads to the elimination of craving and anger as well. You would need to first be working on developing wisdom in order to even get to the point where you can eliminate craving and anger because you wouldn't even know that craving and anger are a problem if you didn't arise wisdom in the mind to know that they're a problem. So let's see what questions you guys have on this one. No question this time, teacher. Okay. So Bassam asked me to read this one as well, which is chapter 64, five future dangers in the way for consideration. So here, The Buddha is talking about what are the five things that can stand in your way of attaining enlightenment. And he kind of gives these five dangers of how the mind can become complacent, essentially, and maybe decides not to practice the teachings right now. So let's read through this and then I'll share some teachings with you as we go. Monks, there are these five future dangers in the way from reflecting on which the diligent, dedicated, determined monk, far is gone, ought to live just to attain the unattained, to master the unmastered, to realize the unrealized. What five? One, take the case of a monk who reflects thus. I am now young, a mere youth, black-haired and endowed with the beauty of youth, in the prime of life, But there will come a time when old age shall touch this body, and when grown old and overcome by age, it is not easy to attend to the Buddha's teachings. It is not easy to retreat to the forest wilderness. Before that comes to me, unwished for, undesirable, disagreeable condition comes to me. Let me in advance arouse energy for the attainment of the unattained, to master the unmastered, to realize the unrealized. Then, when I am in that condition, I will reside at ease, even though I am old. This is the first future danger to consider 
which is enough for a monk to reside diligent, dedicated, determined for the attainment of the unattained. So what he's talking about here is while you're young, learn and practice the teachings because then you have the youthfulness in your favor and you can actively purify the mind so that having done the work to attain the unattained, master the unmastered, realize the unrealized, then when you get old, you can reside at ease. Because once you're old, if you choose to start learning and practicing the teachings, then it's going to be a lot harder for you because the mind isn't as sharp. It's not as crisp. So he's saying, you know, practice the teachings when you're young so that you can gain this wisdom and get to this attainment of enlightenment. So reside diligent, dedicated and determined while you're young so you don't meet this danger of becoming old, and then it's a lot more challenging for you to learn and practice these teachings. With that said, there's really no wrong time to start practicing. So if you've come into these teachings at the age of 60 or 70 or 80 or what have you, or even older, learn the teachings. Even my grandmother, who's 98, 99 years old, she didn't know anything about the Buddha. And about a year ago, she learned that I was starting to teach again. And I said, oh, I've written some books about this. And she was like, oh, I'd like to read it. I'd like to learn. And I was like, all right, great. I'll send you a copy at 98 years old. So it's never too old to start learning and practicing these teachings. And anything that you learn is going to benefit you in this life and in future lives. But the ideal situation would be to learn these teachings as young as possible and start right now. When is the right time to learn? right now. That's when the right time to learn is. So don't delay is what the Buddha is saying here. Don't allow complacency to come into the mind thinking that you're so youthful and instead use that to your advantage so that old age you can reside at ease. The second one, again he reflects, I have health and well-being, a good digestion which is neither too cold nor too heated, but moderate and subtle for striving. But there will come a time when sickness shall touch this body. In sick and ill, it is not easy to attend to the Buddhist teachings. It is not easy to retreat to the forest wilderness. Before that comes to me, unwished for, undesirable, disagreeable condition comes upon me. Let me in advance arouse energy for the attainment of the unattained, to master the unmastered, to realize the unrealized. Then... When I am in that condition, I will reside at ease, even though I am sick. This is the second future danger to consider, which is enough for a monk to reside diligent, dedicated, determined for the attainment of the unattained. So essentially the same thing. Don't take our health for granted. If the body is healthy, use that to your advantage. Don't use that as a way to become complacent and put off learning and practicing the teachings. Instead, use that health to your advantage because there will come a time when this body is sick and it is old, like he talked about in the previous paragraph. So he's saying, okay, practice right now before the body becomes old and sick. Same thing here, number three. I'm not going to read through the whole thing because it's essentially the same thing as he says, okay, if you have lots of food now and food is plentiful, meaning you can nourish this physical body, don't become complacent because of that, but instead use it to your advantage because there's going to come a time when perhaps you don't have much food. 
And he talks about famine and bad harvest and difficulty in getting food. So if you're able to learn and practice while you have access to these food, then later on when there is no access to this food with the mind already having attained enlightenment, you can reside at ease. The fourth one, he talks about when there's friendly fellowship, essentially when you have wholesome friends, when you have wholesome companions and wholesome comrades, he's saying, okay, this is a great time to learn and practice the teachings. Don't become complacent in that, that you have such wholesome friends because later in life, maybe that isn't going to be the case. So learn and practice now so that you can then get to enlightenment. So later on, as things change in your life, you can reside at ease. And then the fifth one, he talks about the community that during his lifetime, they were close together. They were friendly. They were in fellowship. They were all working towards learning and practicing just the one teaching that he had shared because he was the Buddha and he was sharing the teachings into the world that were helpful and beneficial for those practitioners and those students at that time. And he said, okay, take this to your advantage, essentially. Don't become complacent because there's going to come a time when the community is fractured, when they're not going to have this cohesiveness that they had during his lifetime. And he predicted that his community would slowly start to misunderstand the teachings and his teachings would slowly disappear. And he's saying during this time that you have this ability when the community is strong and vibrant and cohesive, use this to your advantage. Don't allow the mind to become complacent. Stay diligent, dedicated, and determined for the attainment of the unattained. And this is where you can progress to enlightenment. So then when the community is fractured and broken up, you can reside at ease because you've already attained enlightenment when the conditions were really good. And then he finishes this up with monks. There are these five future dangers in the way to consider which the diligent, dedicated, determined monk, far is gone, ought to live just to attain the unattained, to master the unmastered, to realize the unrealized. So these are the five dangers that the mind can oftentimes become complacent if it's experiencing youthfulness, if it's experiencing health, if it's experiencing lots of food, if it's experiencing wholesome friends, it can get complacent. Or if it's like, oh, this community is so tight, it's so close, we've got great friends in this community of practitioners, I'm not going to really apply much effort to learning. Things kind of feel pretty good right now. I'm not yet enlightened, but I'm kind of complacent because things feel pretty good. The Buddha's like, no, don't allow that to create complacency in the mind, but use these things to your advantage so that you can push all the way through to the end where you experience enlightenment or final knowledge. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, teacher. As for the first point, someone may think that it's okay to enjoy all the sensual pleasures while I am young and thinking that, of course, when I'm getting older and older, all these cravings will fade away, which makes progressing towards uh, enlightenment would be easier. Do you agree with this? I don't agree with that because an unenlightened mind that ages, as we know, we get 50, 60, 70 years old and our comprehension and our ability to learn 
degrades for an unenlightened being that is off this path. It's very hard for older people to learn and acquire wisdom because the mind isn't really well refined and it's degraded over time. An enlightened mind, if you attain enlightenment at 20, 30, 40 years old, you're not going to have a degrading of the mind. It's going to stay sharp and crisp and clear all the way until death. Even the Buddha dying at the age of 80, he talked about how his eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the bodily contact, those sense bases diminished. But he talked about how his mind was still clear and, and crisp and able to comprehend things very clearly. So an enlightened mind isn't going to degrade over time. But a mind that has this pollution, the pollution is just going to accumulate more and more and more and more. And it's going to become more and more intense in the mind. And this is why the mind becomes more and more muddled as a being ages who's not learning and practicing these teachings. By the time they're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, it's a lot harder for them to learn and comprehend these teachings because the mind is so polluted through so many conditioned experiences throughout their life. So it's actually easier when you're younger because there's not as much pollution. There's not as much conditioning to transform. So if you actually learn these teachings very early in life, then you kind of set yourself up for a really wonderful life of making lots of wise decisions. Where if you went through life for 60, 70 years, not knowing these teachings, you were making all kinds of unwholesome decisions and your life became very difficult and really struggled throughout your life. Whereas if you learn these teachings at six years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old, very early in life, you'll be making wise decisions all the way through your life and develop a really wonderful life for yourself where you're continually improving the condition of the mind in the condition of your life. Waiting to the end of life would be highly unwise because there's no guarantee that there's going to be any ability for you to develop your mind later in life or that you'll even get to 70 or 80 years old. You might actually die when you're 40, 50, 60 years old. So the earlier that you start working on these teachings and learning them, the better. I started teaching Bailan when he was six years old. But sometimes I even think that he was actually learning when he was in his mom's stomach because his mom was meditating all throughout her pregnancy. So he was absorbing the benefits of his mom having a calmer mind. So children can actually learn, I feel, while they're in the womb. Because if mom is meditating, dad is meditating, mom and dad are learning and practicing these teachings, it's going to be a more peaceful household. There's not going to be arguing and festering and fighting in the home that the baby in the womb is going to be absorbing. So by mom and dad practicing really well, then baby, even in the womb, is picking up and absorbing that. And then when they come out, even as an infant, they can't talk yet, but they understand hostility and aggression and arguments in the household. So even at two months old, six months old, one year old, two years old, the child is absorbing their environment around them. And if the parents and people around them are practicing well, this is going to lead to much better results in the child being able to develop and learn these teachings. So no matter what age you come to these teachings, that's the age that you came to them, learn them and practice them. But then as you have children or you have other people around you that are contemplating whether to learn these either now or at some point in the future, the right time to learn is always right now.
Thanks a lot, teacher. Let's go to Manal. She has a question. Teacher David, your commentary on plentiful food may promote a complacent mind, and one should not allow easy access to to food to lure the mind into complacency. Can you expand on that a little bit and how, what to do, what practical things one can do in order to help that situation? Yeah, the Buddha teaches moderation in eating. He taught to eat just once a day, which some people nowadays feel like it's probably better if we eat you know, two or three times a day. Some people feel that during the lifetime of the Buddha, the food probably had a lot more nutritional value because the soil, the water, and the environment wasn't as polluted as it is today. So the same broccoli 2,500 years ago might have had a higher nutritional value than that same broccoli today. So people tend to eat a little bit more today, but we shouldn't gorge in our food. We shouldn't eat out of emotion for pleasant feelings and get to the point where we have this big, huge, bulging stomach and the body's working really hard to digest the food. So if you have lots of food, in the time of the Buddha, this is essentially a sign of wealth. And today, food is quite plentiful in certain parts of the world, but that might not always be the case. So what I would suggest is that you eat in moderation, that you don't gorge, and this will help you maintain kind of a a body that isn't working so hard to digest your food and you can appreciate the food that you have and have loving kindness and compassion for those that don't have food. So we shouldn't kind of take for granted the luxuries that we have. If we live in a home that is a home, that is a pretty good shelter, if we have air conditioning, if we have food and water and clothing, these are all things that are necessities for life and we shouldn't just be complacent in that, but instead look at this as a benefit that, okay, I've got these things now, but based on impermanence, I may not always have them. So let me apply effort and energy to really learn and practice and to really develop that determination, that dedication and that diligence. To a certain degree, it really just requires you to pick up your pants, put on your pants, put on your boots, and just make it happen. There's no magical thing that you can click your fingers to create diligence or dedication or determination. It has to be grown within. And whenever you see the mind is complacent, which we're going to be talking about here in a moment, you bring the mind back with the enlightenment factor of investigation the enlightenment factor of energy, and then this brings up the enlightenment factor of joy. So don't allow any kind of luxuries that you might have now to promote complacency in the mind. And wherever you see complacency, eradicate it through the enlightenment factor of investigation and energy and joy. Thanks. Well, no more questions for this one, teacher. All right, let's move to the next one. Here we are. Yes. <laughs> The next volunteer is uh, Manal. When the mind becomes sluggish. On an occasion, monks, when the mind become, becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, monks, and it is difficult to arouse it with those things. Suppose, monks, a man wants to make a small fire flare up, if he throws wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet timber into it, sprays it with water, and scatters soil over it, 
Would he be able to make that small fire flare up? No, venerable sir. So too monks on an occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, monks, and it is difficult to rouse it with those things. On an occasion, monks, when the mind becomes sluggish, it is timely to develop the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, monks, and it is easy to arouse it with those things. Suppose, monks, the man wants to make a small fire flare up. If he throws dry grass, dry cow dung, dry timber into it, blows on it, and does not scatter soil over it, would he be able to make that small fire flare up? So too, monks, on an occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is timely to develop the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. For what reason? Because mind is sluggish, monks, and it is easy to arouse it with those things. Thank you, Manal. Here, the Buddha is describing a complacent mind, that when the mind becomes complacent or sluggish, this dullness, this lack of motivation or enthusiasm, he's saying that would be the wrong time to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, because the mind's already kind of slowed down in, in this sluggish state. But instead, you practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, of energy, and joy, and that's what brings it back to the middle. Because remember, the goal is to bring the mind to the middle so it's performing optimally. If it's already sluggish, if it's already complacent, and you add tranquility, concentration, and equanimity to it, it's going to take it down to complacency even more because it's slowing the mind down. So the way to pick the mind up is investigation, energy, and joy. And he's using this analogy of the fire to help you understand that you know to make this fire ignite you would need to add this dry cow dung, right? This, this dry timber, and then make sure that that is going to invigorate this fire. So to invigorate the fire in the mind and kind of excite the mind and kind of bring it back to the middle, you would like to do investigation, energy, and joy. Questions on this chapter? Not seeing any question for the teacher. Okay. Chapter 66. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is uh, Nick. When the mind becomes excited, on an occasion, monks, when the mind becomes excited, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, monks, and it is difficult to calm it down with those things. Suppose, monks, a man wants to extinguish a great bonfire. If he throws dry grass, dry cow dung, and dry timber into it, blows on it, and does not scatter soil over it, would he be able to extinguish that great bonfire? No, venerable sir. So too, monks, on an occasion when the mind becomes excited, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, monks, and it, it is difficult to calm it down with those things. On an occasion, monks, when the mind becomes excited, 
it is timely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, monks, and it, e and it is easy to calm it down with those things. Suppose, monks, a man wants to extinguish a great bonfire. If he throws wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet timber into it, sprays it with water, and scatters soil over it, would he be able to extinguish that great bonfire? Yes, venerable sir. So too, monks, on an occasion when the mind becomes excited, it is timely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, monks, and it is easy to calm it down with those things. But mindfulness, monks, I say is always useful. All right, thanks, Nick. So here, the Buddha is explaining the opposite. Before, it was the sluggish mind lifting it up with investigation, energy, and joy. Now, if the mind is overactive or excited or anxious, he's saying, okay, the way to remedy this is to practice the enlightenment factor of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. That's the way to remedy the mind and bring it to the middle. And then at the very end, he says, mindfulness is always useful. What he's referring to here is the seven factors of enlightenment. I discussed this in volume one, chapter three. You can learn there where I summarize this teaching. And I say, you know, if the mind is sluggish to practice investigation, energy, and joy. If the mind is excited, practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity and then always be practicing the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and i describe each one of the individual factors of enlightenment these are essentially another tool to help you bring the mind to the middle an enlightened being is going to be practicing all seven factors all the time but in the process of getting to enlightenment you're going to need to refine the mind at different times you're going to find that it maybe be sluggish or complacent or dull at certain times you need to kind of lift it up and then there's times where it's excited or overactive and you would like to calm it down and here's the tool that the buddha is giving you to be able to do that so if your mind was really excited and high energy that's the wrong time to be investigating the teachings because it's going to make it even more excited that's the wrong time to be practicing the enlightenment factor of energy or joy so Knowing with mindfulness, whether the mind is sluggish and complacent or excited and high energy, then you can implement the various factors to bring it to the middle. And the way that you do that is by always practicing the enlightenment factor of mindfulness or awareness of mind. And that's what will allow you to bring the mind to the middle. And the more and more that the mind resides in the middle, it'll just always stay there. As you get closer and closer to enlightenment, the mind won't dip into complacency. It won't move to this overexcited uh, condition. It'll just always stay in the middle. It'll reside in that groove. But wherever you observe with mindfulness that it's not in that groove, where it's not in the middle, the Buddha is giving you the guidance here of how to bring it to the middle. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question for this one, teacher. All right. Let's move to chapter 67, which Bassam asked me to read this one as well. 
Four developments of concentration. Monks, there are these four developments of concentration. What for? There is a development of concentration that leads to residing peaceful in this very life. There is a development of concentration that leads to obtaining wisdom and vision. There is a development of concentration that leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. There is a development of concentration that leads to the destruction of the taints. So here the Buddha is going to describe concentration and how that leads to peacefulness in this very life, how developing concentration leads to wisdom and vision, and how it leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension, and how it leads to destruction of the taints. These aren't four different types of concentration. These are just how to use concentration for these particular benefits of residing peaceful, of obtaining wisdom and vision, of developing mindfulness and clear comprehension, of developing the destruction of the taints, which are those 10 fetters. That's ultimately what leads to enlightenment is destroying or destruction of the taints, the 10 fetters, eradicating those from the mind. So developing concentration through the Eightfold Path is what's going to lead to this peacefulness, this wisdom and vision, this mindfulness, clear comprehension, and ultimately the elimination of the 10 fetters. You wouldn't be able to eliminate the 10 fetters without first learning and practicing the Eightfold Path to develop concentration. That's what leads to the destruction of the fetters. So here we'll go through each one of these as he describes it. Number one, in what monks is the development of concentration that leads to the residing peacefully in this very life? Here he describes the four jhanas. I'm not going to read through this in entirety because we've done that in other classes, but remember that these jhanas are the four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying, okay, in order to get to this peacefulness in this very life, you would need to get to the jhanas. And the way that you do that is through learning and practicing the full path. And by developing that as your life practice, the mind moves into these four preliminary phases. And for someone who resides in the jhanas, life is somewhat peaceful. It's pretty peaceful. You're still experiencing discontentedness. The mind is still not yet enlightened, but life is pretty peaceful in the jhanas. But you don't want to get complacent there. You would like to keep moving beyond that and get into the first, second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. Now the second one. And what is the development of concentration that leads to obtaining wisdom and vision? Here, a monk attends to the perception of light. He focuses on the perception of day, thus, as by day, so at night, as at night, so by day. Thus, with a mind that is open and uncovered, he develops a mind permeating, filled with brightness. This is the development of concentration that leads to obtaining wisdom and vision. So here, he's talking about developing a mind that all throughout the day, it has the same qualities, and all throughout the night, it has the same qualities. He's describing a permanent mental state where the mind is practicing the same way with all beings, that you don't have one way of practicing at one part of the day or another part of 
the day or with one type of being or another type of being, but instead the mind is always permeating with this brightness, with this joy, radiating the light to others that you're always practicing in the same way with all beings. This is what's going to lead to wisdom and vision. The opposite of this would be like someone who's nagging or someone who's complaining constantly, just constantly talking about all the problems in the world, all the disgruntledness in the world, all the negativity, always complaining about what's going on in the world. That would be the opposite of this because that's the darkness. And if somebody's practicing that way where they're always dwelling in the negativity and the darkness, they're not having this permeating brightness in the mind that leads to obtaining wisdom and vision. When the Buddha's talking about vision, it's also kind of like being able to see things clearly, see things as they truly are. And this is what's gonna lead to enlightenment. And it's the concentration that you develop through the Eightfold Path that's going to ultimately lead to being able to practice and obtain this wisdom and vision. Number three, and what is the development of concentration that leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension? Here, a monk knows feelings as they arise, as they remain present, as they disappear. He knows perceptions as they arise, as they remain present, as they disappear. He knows thoughts as they arise, as they remain present, as they disappear. This is the development of concentration that leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. So if you develop concentration, or what we refer to as singleness of mind, then with that singleness of mind, you can clearly observe feelings, perceptions, and thoughts. You guys understand feelings. This is how the mind has certain feelings based on experiences that you have in the world. Perceptions are opinions or beliefs of the way things seem to be. And thoughts, you understand those various thoughts that you have. When you develop this concentration through the Eightfold Path, which leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension, then you can see, ah, there's a pleasant thought. There's happiness arising. Ah, it's remaining present. Ah, there it goes. It's disappearing. Ah, here comes sadness. It's arising. It's remaining present. And there it's disappeared. Right? You can be aware of the mind so well with mindfulness and clear comprehension that this concentration leads to that you can observe feelings arising, remaining present, and then disappearing. Same thing with your perceptions and thoughts. And this requires practice in order to get there. And that's developed through the Eightfold Path. The fourth one, and what is the development of concentration that leads to the destruction of the taints? This is the ultimate goal, to destroy the taints, to destroy the ten fetters. All those other things that the Buddha has been talking about so far is in preparation to destroy the ten fetters. That's why I teach that a practitioner should focus on the Eightfold Path first and all the other associated teachings that are part of that, like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice. That's what's going to ultimately lead to those other three aspects that the Buddha talked about. And that's the preliminary work that a practitioner needs to do 
in order to get to the point where the mind's ready to eliminate the 10 fetters. So once the mind gets into the jhanas, that's when it's ready to start focusing on the elimination of the 10 fetters. You wouldn't be able to just go in and eliminate the 10 fetters. You would need to first develop the first part of your practice, which the Buddha is describing to a certain degree here in one through three, before you're able to focus on eliminating the 10 fetters. But once you have developed and got to the point where the mind's in the jhanas, now you can start focusing on the destruction of the taints or the 10 fetters. And here's how the Buddha talks a little bit about doing that. And remember, this isn't entirely describing how to eliminate the 10 fetters. It's just one particular aspect of it. So here's what the Buddha talks about. Here, a monk resides reflecting on the arising and vanishing in the five aggregates subject to clinging. Such is form, such its origin, such its passing away, such is feeling, such is its origin, such its passing away, such is perception, such its origin, such its passing away, such are volitional formations or choices and decisions, such its origins, such its passing away, such is consciousness, such its origin, such its passing away. This is the development of concentration that leads to the destruction of the taints. These are the four developments of concentration. So if you remember back to the way that the Buddha describes the four noble truths, when he talks about the cause of discontentedness, that second noble truth, he talks about the clinging to form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. And this is the truth. When I describe the Four Noble Truths in the group learning program and in volume one of this book, I describe it in a very simple form just to help people get started and moving along the path and being able to see the truth. But if you look at the Buddhist teachings and you understand the depth and detail of what he's talking about in terms of what truly causes discontentedness, which is the clinging to these five aggregates, this is a much deeper understanding of the real cause of discontentedness. And it can actually help you to understand that clinging to form, which is this physical form, is going to lead to your discontentedness. Or clinging to feelings, those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, it's going to lead to discontentedness. When you're clinging to your perceptions, your opinions, your beliefs, the way you think things should be, then this is going to lead to discontentedness. When you cling to your decisions or your choices, not being willing to let go of certain choices or what the Buddha calls volitional formations, this is going to lead to discontentedness. Or when you cling to this mind, wanting to hold on to this mind, not being willing to let go, then you're going to experience discontentedness. So this is the Buddha describing that in order to get to the elimination of the taints, you need to first be willing to let go and practice non-attachment and non-clinging to the five aggregates, no longer holding on to form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, or consciousness. Let's see what questions you guys have on this. Nick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Hello, teacher. I was wondering, 
what would you say the best way is to reflect on or to really soak in the mind the passing away, fading away, or subsiding of five aggregates? Okay, so first, a practitioner needs to understand what the five aggregates are individually. Make sure you understand what each individual aggregate is, which I've described in this book series, so that you understand what those are. But if you need help, be sure you ask to know very clearly exactly what are the individual aggregates. Then, in terms of the physical form, you can train the mind to let go of this and reside reflecting on the arising of this physical form by understanding how physical form comes into being through birth, right? Through development of a being inside the womb. This is the origin of the physical form going back to dependent origination, which we're going to be talking about in volume five. So if you understand dependent origination, then you understand how form comes to be. That's the origin of it. Then you understand the passing away of it, which is essentially this physical form is impermanent. It's going to arise, it's going to change, and then it's going to fade away. It's impermanent. And what you can do here is you can contemplate your own death, where you sit quietly and you think about your own death and how this body is not permanent so that you don't cling to this physical form. That's one of the ways to reflect on the arising and the vanishing of this physical form is by contemplating your own death, maybe even visualizing how your memorial service is going to be or if you're in a casket or if you're getting cremated or what have you, kind of almost like you're a fly on the wall kind of looking at your own memorial service. And it might actually bring up some tears or some painful feelings for you. So you might need to actually do that multiple times. This will not only help you to let go of physical form, this aggregate, but it also will help you develop the perception of death, which the Buddha talks about as well and helps you to train the mind to not be fearful of death. So that's one way to kind of work with that. Feelings, you need to understand how feelings come to be. And that's also through dependent origination. It helps you to understand how feelings arise in the mind and then observing how they pass away, not allowing the mind to cling to them. Perceptions, understanding your opinions and your beliefs and understanding how when you arise perceptions and holding on to those perceptions, they're only going to create discontentedness in the mind where you have to be willing to kind of look at the world in a different way. If we are perceiving the world in a certain way and you hold on to that, then you're going to experience discontentedness. So you have to be willing to let go of your perceptions. And Nick and I, you remember at Sangkampeng when we were in the hot springs where we were talking about perceptions and I was helping you see how holding on to perceptions causes discontentedness. So you can reflect back to that about how when you let go of your perceptions and you kind of look at things with a fresh mind, not clinging to your opinions and beliefs, that you can actually be more liberated where you might have opinions, you might have certain beliefs, but you don't allow the mind to hold on and cling to those, but you ask questions of other people so you can have an informed opinion rather than just clinging to your existing opinion. 
So being willing to let go of your perceptions, being willing to let go of your choices and decisions. Whereas if you and a partner are going somewhere and you really want to see a certain movie, for example, and they really want to see another movie, there's going to be a conflict here because you guys want two separate things. Somebody's going to have to be willing to let go and not cling to their choices and decisions. So understanding that the choices and decisions are going to arise in the mind and they're going to fade away and you need to train the mind to let go of those, not holding on to your decisions in all situations. And then the same thing with the mind. As you observe this mind and it becomes more and more clear, you're cultivating the mind, you're developing the mind, this consciousness. Don't cling to it thinking that it's always going to be this way. You need to observe that the mind is going to be shifting and changing as you make your way to enlightenment and don't try to cling to any particular thing that's in the mind or the mind itself. And this is how you can just train the mind to let go of all of this stuff, not holding on to any particular thing. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, I had another question. And in, in, in the example number two, um, treating all beings the same, right? That was one of the things you said uh, in there. Yep. Um, I got an example from uh, last night at Chiang Mai uh, Jiu-Jitsu class. Um, I was uh, partnered up with a, with a black belt, and uh, you know, I was saying I called him sir, and then he says, uh, "Oh, don't call me sir. I'm not as old as Brian, like the professor." But I said, "I said, uh, well, I'm just trying to treat everyone the same, you know." But he was sticking to that, and and I remember um, this example kind of came up on, on on one of the things. He said, hey, if this ever happens, do this. So I was just wondering if you could refresh my memory on that, on how to handle something like that. If the guy's trying to alter your practice, like what would be the best way to um, politely say, nah, I'm going to still call you sir, you know? In certain situations, it just makes sense to kind of adjust, especially since you're not going to have a long-term relationship with that particular person. In other situations, you might decide to help them see that, you know, this is just the way you choose to practice. In a situation like that, where you're just here for a temporary time, you're not going to have a long-term relationship with this person, I'd probably just adjust and not necessarily need to call him sir. But if you would like to try to be skillful and try to say and talk, I would say something like, okay, so you don't want me to call you sir. I try to be polite and refer to someone as sir. Is it okay for you to allow me to just choose to call people sir? Is that something that you can just be comfortable with and not try to influence me to change how I practice and that I would like to, to be polite? You know, I might say something like that. I don't have these stock answers or these stock ways of dealing with something because you can't come up with one way of dealing with something that applies to all people. In each situation, I'm going to be making a decision in the present moment of, does it make sense for me to share something with this person? Or is it just a temporary relationship where it's actually more challenging to help this person to release their clinging, because they're clinging, not wanting you to call them sir, rather than just being comfortable and at ease no matter what. So you always are kind of evaluating in the situation, what's the best thing to do? 
And in a temporary relationship with like that, it might just be easier to move on. Or if the person has really strong feelings about not being called sir, you don't really want to force your way and call them sir because that's you clinging to your decisions. That's you clinging to your volitional formations. So you might need to be the flexible one that is just like, okay, well, I'll call you whatever you'd like me to call you or what have you. So don't cling to your decision to call someone sir. So each situation is different, Nick. You've always got to remember that your goal here is not to train other people. You're only going to train people who choose to be your student if you become a teacher someday. The other people in the world that you're interacting with, you shouldn't feel the obligation to go around and teach them because that's your own craving to try to get them to allow you to call them sir. And in reality, if you're practicing to attain enlightenment, you can be comfortable calling them sir or calling them John or Bob or whatever. It doesn't really matter to you. But if you cling to your decision of calling someone sir, then that's where you're you're clinging and it's only going to cause your discontentedness. Don't feel like you have to force upon others something that you're choosing to practice. So in certain situations, like you've seen me with like the taxi driver we had the other day, I kind of worked with him a little bit skillfully to kind of help him see some other things. But that was because his mind was willing to see it and talk about it. But you notice that I didn't pound it. I didn't force it. I didn't try to do any particular thing. I just kind of let him decide that he was interested in learning. And once he decided he was interested to learn, then I shared something with him. But in situation that you're describing, I may or may not go further with that conversation. It all depends on certain variables that are happening in the present moment and making a decision in that present moment. Okay, sir. Thank you. I would like to add something to that, Nick. In terms of maintaining your practice to always be the same, it doesn't mean that you always are going to call everyone sir or call everyone ma'am. When I say maintain your practice to be the same, what I mean is polite, kind, friendly, respectful, some of the higher level guidance. But some of the detailed things like calling someone sir you might not choose to call everyone sir or you might not choose to call everyone ma'am based on the situation so don't feel like those particular things that you have to hold on to them really tightly but make sure that you practice polite kind friendly and respectful and sometimes that means that if somebody is asking you to call them sir or not call them sir that you just kind of oblige because that's kind of like a temporary relationship and it's just easier to move past it but still maintain your polite kind friendly and respectfulness okay sir that makes sense i only had to uh, address them one more time after that and i just called them Vic. so that actually makes me feel better that uh hearing that from you and thanks for the example on how to um, skillfully use that in the future if i'm gonna have a longer relationship and uh thank you for the follow-up uh, that really helped where you said, I don't have to call everybody, sir. Just use the higher, the higher guidance. Thanks. That, that, uh, I got it now. Okay. Sounds good. Any other questions? No more questions for Dr. Chirp. All right. Let's move to the next chapter, which is chapter 68. Yes. Uh, the next volunteer is Nick. Develop concentration. Suppose discourse. Monks. Develop concentration. 
a monk who is concentrated and understands things as they really are. And what does he understand as it really is? He understands as it really is, this is discontentedness. He understands that as it really is, this is the cause of discontentedness. He understands as it really is, this is the elimination of discontentedness. He understands as it really is, this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Monks, develop concentration. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Nick. So here you guys probably already know by now the Buddha is pointing to the Four Noble Truths. And as you know, as part of the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths is that first step, right view. Right concentration is the eighth step, which I describe as practicing singleness of mind, practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, and ultimately a byproduct of practicing the entire Eightfold Path. So here, this is where the Buddha is connecting concentration to right view, that you wouldn't be able to complete this path you wouldn't be able to get to concentration without first understanding the Four Noble Truths. And he points to the Four Noble Truths continuously throughout his teachings as being a foundational teaching that one needs to learn and practice in order to have that breakthrough to establishing right view. So this is what he's describing is that in order to see things clearly, get to that clear comprehension and develop concentration, a practitioner would need to learn, reflect, and practice the Four Noble Truths. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question at this time, teacher. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward one for you guys at this point. So now we go to chapter 69, which Bossum asked me to read. This is Develop Concentration, a second discourse. Monks, develop concentration. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they truly are, or as they are. And what does he understand as it really is? The origin and passing away of form, the origin and passing away of feeling, the origin and passing away of perception, the origin and passing away of volitional formations, the origin and passing away of consciousness. So this is the five aggregates. He's pointing to the five aggregates and saying, this is something that you need to understand in order to get to concentration because you would need to learn the five aggregates and not cling to them in order to get to concentration. And what, monks, is the origin of form? What is the origin of feeling? What is the origin of perception? What is the origin of volitional formations, choices and decisions? What is the origin of consciousness? Here, monks, one seeks excitement, one welcomes, one remains holding, and what is it that one seeks excitement in? What does one welcome? To what does one remain holding? One seeks excitement in form, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As a consequence of this, excitement arises. Excitement in form is clinging. 
with one's clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. So here, he's going to talk about each individual aspect of the five aggregates. And essentially, seeking pleasant feelings in physical form, welcoming it, and remaining holding on to it. As a consequence, this excitement arises in the mind. The mind is clinging. And if the mind is clinging, then there's going to be all these other things, which essentially leads to discontentedness. If the mind is seeking pleasant feelings, longing, chasing the objects of its affection and clinging to form, then it's going to lead to discontentedness. Let me give you an example of this. Let's just say we have hair and we have a certain way that we like our hair, a certain form, and we come to decide that this hairstyle, when we can get it in exactly that hairstyle, then we're excited and we're clinging to it. We remain holding on to it. We feel these pleasant feelings when we have a good hair day, right? And now we have this hair and we're excited in this form and we're clinging to it, right? Well, then what happens when we can't get our hair into that same form? Because hair is impermanent and we're not going to always be able to get the hair into that same style. So therefore, if we cling to this pleasant feelings, we cling to this form of getting the hair into a particular fashion or a particular style, when impermanence comes and you're not able to get the hair into that same style, then there's going to be discontentedness. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be displeasure. There's going to be despair. So this is how all discontentedness arises in the mind is there some clinging, there's some pleasant feeling, there's some happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria that the mind's seeking in form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness that the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection. And then if it gets those pleasant feelings, it's welcoming it, it's remaining holding on to it. And as a consequence of that excitement arising in the mind, then there's clinging and now there's going to be discontentedness. I say this as if you cling and hold on and welcome to pleasant feelings, then you're inviting in painful feelings at some point. And the Buddha is explaining that in much more detail here and describing a bit of dependent origination to help you see how this all comes to be. So I'm going to skip over all of these because they're the same thing, just changing the aggregate. And then he says, this monks is the origin of form. This is the origin of feeling. This is the origin of perception. This is the origin of volitional formations. This is the origin of consciousness. And what monks is the passing away of form? What is the passing away of feeling? What is the passing away of perception? What is the passing away of volitional formations? What is the passing away of consciousness? Here, monks, one does not seek excitement. One does not welcome. One does not remain holding. And what is it that one does not seek excitement in? What doesn't one welcome? To what doesn't one remain holding? 
So now he talks about the five aggregates again, that you should not hold on and cling to form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. Because if you do, you're just inviting in these painful feelings of sorrow, pain, displeasure, and despair, and you're going to experience this whole massive amount of discontentedness. And essentially, he's also describing rebirth, that as long as the mind is discontent, it's unenlightened, so therefore it's going to continue to experience birth, sickness, aging, and death. And then we get to the end of this, and he describes, with the elimination of excitement comes elimination of clinging. This is why when you experience a rising of pleasant feelings throughout your day, you cut it off and let it go. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to eliminate those arising of conditioned pleasant feelings. And the way that you do that is you eliminate and cut off and let go of any arising pleasant feelings. So if you feel this conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria coming into the mind, you cut it off and let it go. Because with the elimination of excitement, with the elimination of pleasant feelings, comes the elimination of clinging. Your mind will no longer cling when you stop allowing the pleasant feelings to arise. With the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. So you will no longer experience existence in these realms of existence. With the elimination of existence comes the elimination of birth. So there'll no longer be any rebirth. With the elimination of birth comes the elimination of aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. So he's describing here what I explained in the group learning program, where if you cut off and let go of those pleasant feelings, then all of this discontentedness will kind of unravel itself And you'll get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy where you're no longer experiencing discontentedness. This, monks, is the passing away of form. This is the passing away of feeling. This is the passing away of perception. This is the passing away of volitional formations, choices, and decisions. This is the passing away of consciousness. So this is how the Buddha is describing to let go of those five aggregates and no longer cling to them. What questions do you guys have here? Manel has a question, so let's go to her. Thanks, Vaslan. Um, teacher, do everyone be mindful of the time um, which we're um, conducting this class today? Um, I did have a question, though, and um, regarding the development of concentration and specifically in relation to the five aggregates. Uh, I think you hinted as well that this is, um, this is uh, a little bit of dependent origination um, a little bit of an overlap here um, with the birth as condition and the breakdown of um, dependent origination mentioned here. So uh, my question is, would this, would the uh, deeper concentration in the five aggregates be sort of like a um, teaching on training wheels for dependent origination? I don't agree with that. What he's really saying here is that in order to get the concentration, you have to eliminate clinging to the five aggregates. That's what all of this is really describing. And he's kind of giving you a step-by-step of how to no longer cling to the five aggregates. Because as long as the mind is clinging to the five aggregates, it's going to be muddled. So if we're clinging to form, feelings, 
perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness, the mind can experience this concentration. So the way to get to concentration is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, clinging to the five aggregates and all the other things as well. So that's what he's really talking about is how to get to concentration is to eliminate clinging. Right. The mind is always looking for some overlap between previous teachings and dependent on origination. Maybe that this is where this is going, my question. But I tend to see overlap with um, the teachings and pointing to um, the deeper um, concentrated teaching and dependent origination. Um, Perhaps we could take it offline though. Yeah, what I'll share with you, the reason why you're seeing that overlap and you're seeing the connections is because dependent origination is what the Buddha called the ultimate truth. It's the highest teaching. It's the one teaching that encapsulates all the problems, essentially, in the unenlightened mind. And therefore, it can help you understand the solution. So when you think about these natural laws of existence and you think about the Buddhist teachings, everything in one way or another connects back to dependent origination. That's the ultimate truth. Now, I talk about the Eightfold Path as being the central core teaching that everything else plugs into, and that's how we develop our life practice along the lines of the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings are really based on dependent origination because dependent origination is explaining the entire problem of the unenlightened mind and all these other teachings that the Buddha teaches is how to eradicate and fix dependent origination. Sure. Um, may we go to Amina's question next, Teacher David? Sure. Okay, she asks, using your example of clinging to a hairstyle, would the more wholesome behavior be to enjoy the hairstyle in that moment while realizing that it will not be repeated and that it is okay as it should be, as it is impermanent? Therefore, in all states that are experienced, we should develop the mindfulness that what is being experienced will eventually end. This is a constant state for the mind to develop each day and each moment. Yes, that sounds wonderful, Amina. Whenever you're experiencing anything, just know that it's always impermanent. As soon as the mind's trying to cling to it and hold on to it permanently, that's where discontentedness arises. So what you just described is a way of thinking that yeah, you can enjoy this hairstyle. You like it. Oh, wow, this is wonderful. But don't expect or want or crave that to happen every single day or every single time. It's not going to be possible. So what you just described is how an enlightened being would look at all situations around them. Just never clinging, wanting anything to be permanent, but just enjoying with what is, allowing the mind to be satisfied with what is. Well, since that no more question for the chapter. Okay, so now we'll go to our very last chapter for today's class, chapter 70. Yes. The first jhana is secure from danger and moral. So too monks, when distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. On that occasion, it occurs to the monk, now I am secure from danger and Mara, can, and Mara cannot do anything to me. It also occurs to Mara, the evil one, now the monk is secure against danger, 
and I cannot do anything to him. Okay, thank you, Basim. So here is where the Buddha is describing that once a practitioner gets into that first jhana, this entity, this being of Mara, the evil one, can't do anything to influence that being. So prior to that, Mara is always trying to influence the mind in a negative, harmful, unwholesome way. Other people in other traditions might describe Mara as the devil or Satan or Lucifer. The Buddha described this being as Mara, the evil one. And once a practitioner has developed their practice through the Eightfold Path to the point of reaching the jhanas, there's been so much progress and you've observed so much truth and the mind's residing in this preliminary phase prior to getting to the first stage of enlightenment that this being of Mara can no longer influence you in negative ways because your practice is too well developed at that point. The Buddha also described this as blindfolding Mara, that Mara can no longer see you. And this is very helpful because prior to the first jhana, you might be learning and practicing the teachings and you're progressing along this path and you might know, for example, that substances that cause heedlessness are unwholesome and are going to produce unwholesome results. But you might say, ah, let me just smoke a joint or let me have a few beers or a few glasses of wine. What harm can it hurt? Where that's the Buddha saying, okay, that's your mind kind of being influenced by Mara moving towards unwholesomeness. But once your mind has progressed to the level of the first jhana, then you're no longer going to be influenced by this being kind of trying to entice you towards unwholesomeness. Because by that point, your mind has learned, reflected, and practiced so much that it's not going to be negatively influenced by this being of Mara, the evil one. What questions do you guys have on this? No more questions, teacher. All right. So I'll just end that here and uh, kind of move back to the overall. So these chapters, this book, we're more than halfway through now, and we're moving on to beyond into the future chapters. We're going to be in chapter 71 through chapters 80 in our next class. So feel free to read those. As I mentioned in the past, you know, taking 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, maybe just reading one or two chapters, because with 10 chapters in seven days, you can just kind of read one or two per day and really reflect on that and kind of slowly drip it into the mind while you're maintaining your meditation practice. This is the best way to study the Buddhist teaching. So you're taking small little bites, chewing and digesting on that. So thank you guys for learning and practicing these teachings. I can see that by having the explanations in the books, it seems like it's really helping you guys to understand the Buddhist teachings. And you're not having as many questions, but as you have questions, feel free to ask those. You know, how do I apply this to my life? Or how do I develop this in uh, practice? That's really important that you don't just believe the teachings, but you learn, reflect, and practice them to be able to see the truth for yourself. So in that next class, next Saturday, we'll be doing chapters 71 through 80. This week, tomorrow, in the group learning program, we're going to be discussing the Four Noble Truths, Establishing Right View. This is chapter four in volume one. So you're welcome to attend that. 
and learn more about the Four Noble Truths or ask questions about the Four Noble Truths, if you feel like you need to do that, it can always be a great refresher. Having that repetitive learning of understanding the Four Noble Truths is really, really helpful. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing our fourth class of our four-part series on loving kindness meditation. So thank you all for joining today's class. I'll see you guys either Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.